Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. I want to give you a little update on what happened this week, because so many of you prayed for me in my presentation to Florida Gulf Coast University. Florida Gulf Coast University will never be the same. (laughs) Never be the same. You know, and there's about five guys in this class who are witnesses to that. Everett was there, and George was there, and Carlo was there, Bob Grissom was there, and you can talk to them, and, you know, they'll they'll give you an eyewitness report. But uh, 150 kids in an introduction to contemporary religion, world religion class, and I was invited to speak there by a teaching assistant who's in the 11 o'clock class. And so I had determined that when I was going to do this, that I wanted to make a presentation that would speak to them from the point of view of being an educated person and letting them know what separates Christianity from every other religion. What separates us? And the fact that for us, we understand that God never asked us to take a leap in the dark. It's one of the things that the world doesn't understand. You see, they think that we are Christians because we're just some wild-eyed zealots. You know what I mean? Just wild-eyed, you know, people that just have this incredible view of the cosmos and and, and relying on unseen forces. That's nothing further than the truth. You know that. As I said to these kids, we, we, God, does not want you to accept him based on a leap into the dark. God has given us incredible amounts of overwhelming evidence for thousands of years about who he is about what his direction is and what a purpose is in his life. And so you can imagine, I'm speaking to 150 kids on, on this level, and the presser, the professor is a Hindu. He's a Hindu. And all I can tell you is, during the course of this presentation, I engaged with this fellow. I mean, I gave him direct eye contact. <laughs> because I, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that I've learned in my life. You know, that my successes in court, I always had eye contact. I was always... Always look at people, because one of the things you could tell them, especially when you were cross-examining people, you could see the liars. And most people that testify in court are liars. <laughs> That's the truth. So I always look people directly in the eye, and I could see it, and I could tell that this professor was engaged. I could see it as I went through. And so what I, what I basically did, and I'm not going to retell every, everything the way I did Thursday night. If you're at the Thursday night uh, party, I really went through it in detail. But uh, what I did was I kind of presented the overall story of Christianity. And what I said was, uh, uh, as an introductory point, that nothing, no other religion in the world, no other major religion in the world has changed the world the way Christianity has. Look at the universities. Look at the hospitals. Look at the orphanages. Look at the outreach to the poor. You don't see that based on any other religious group. So right up front, Right up front, as you make the first cut of what attracts Christianity to you, is that effort. Regardless of whether you believe in God or whether you believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, And then I talked about the fact that here was this man born in effectively an obscure truck stop uh, called Bethlehem. And this one man changed the entire history of the world. 
Uh, and when you realize that, you take that into consideration. And when you realize that the first 11 guys who walked with him not stopped for three years, 24 hours a day, uh, these first 11 guys martyred themselves, and not in a suicide way, martyred themselves because they were executed because they, would, they did that for their faith. Now, as I said to the quest, who would be uh, martyred and executed for their faith? All right? Don't give me these Muslim uh, terrorists. They're, they're killing themselves and other people. And I'm talking about people who, for the sake of Christ, giving a gospel, not doing anything unrighteous, would be executed just for their faith in that as they reached out for the faith. Nobody, nobody would do that. Nobody would give themselves up like that. Unless they had an understanding that they were with God, that they walked with God. And so, and then as I, as I web, you know, weave this story, I gave my personal testimony. And I did that because uh, the professor wanted me to do it. But I think also what, what it did was I, wanted, I said to the kids, look, I am not a minister. I am not a holy man. I am not some pious guy. I am just like you. I'm a regular guy. I'm a lawyer. I spent my life in court. And the difference between Christianity and all these other uh, religions is that God, in our faith, takes regular people like me and determines that he can call them and use them, sometimes in extraordinary ways. Amen. You will not see that. You will not see that in other, in other religions. And so that's the story of my life. And then I gave the story of my life. Of course, you know it. Coming to Naples and God calling me and starting the Bible story, Bible class with five people in the, in the house. Uh, and how it grew and that how I didn't seek anything and how today, you know, uh, it's 800 people every, every Sunday and Monday. It's 400 radio stations. Totally a God thing. Not a John thing. Totally a God thing. Uh, and then I, I went through and... and um, presented to them the fact that the Bible is reliable. I said, you can't understand what God wants for you. You can't understand God. You can't know who he is unless you read the Bible. The Bible is the way God speaks to you. It's his word. Uh, and here we have 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,600 years in separate cultures, not knowing each other, uh, that ultimately wrote 66 books. And there's one theme in every single book from Genesis to Revelation, and that theme is that God wants a relationship with mankind. And, and that Jesus Christ would be sent to this world, uh, even known 1,500 years before. Jesus Christ would be sent to this world to become its savior, because we are mired in sin. We could never save ourselves. And that's actually the lesson that you get. And then I told them why the Bible was reliable. I gave them all the scientific evidence, all the evidence of the multiple transcripts. All those things that you've heard me speak about, why the Bible is reliable. By the way, you can hear this if you go to our website, the Ripa Foundation. It's posted online. It's already been sent out several hundred times that people have seen this. I've gotten calls from as far away as California, from your friend, who engaged with me over an hour over, over listening to that presentation. So it's, it's touching people. I mean, this is kind of, you can send this to anybody that you know who, who maybe is on the fence doesn't really understand what it is about Christianity, is interested in hearing it. I think if you hear this presentation, uh, it, it will speak to, to the heart of those kind of people, especially uh, even young people. Then I gave the various 
Uh, what did Jesus say who he was? That's the other thing. Who did Jesus say that he was? I said, because you hear people say, well, he was a good man. I said, honestly, if, if you conclude that Jesus is a good man, then I have to tell you that you're way off. Because if Jesus, if what he said about himself was not true, he couldn't have been a good man. He would have been an insane man. He would have been a man that was completely disconnected from reality. So to say that Jesus was a good man really doesn't resonate. Jesus said he was God. He said he was God. And he didn't just say it once. He said it over and over and over. And I gave him some of the citations and the examples about that, that Jesus said he was God. And Jesus said there was only one way. And if you wanted to know what God looked like, you saw him. That's what God looked like. And you couldn't get to God. You couldn't get to heaven unless you went through Jesus Christ. I said he made that abundantly clear. And then I gave uh, a list of all of the prophecies, and I didn't use all of them, but I gave about 25 prophecies that were in the Old Testament that spoke about Jesus from the time that he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, be a, become a Nazarite, uh, would be crucified would be spat upon, that his clothing would, would be bartered and gambled for by soldiers, on and on and on. I mean, I went one after another. Trust me, I did not hold back. All right? I did not hold back. In fact, at one time I said, lock the doors. Lock the doors. No, I didn't say that. I'm making that up. But, but I was mentally locking the doors. I was mentally locking the doors. And then I took questions. Man, was that interesting. That was interesting. Because some of the questions I, I, I expected, you know, well, why is it that you Christians think that there's only one way? Why about, you know, what's, what's wrong with all the other ways? And, of course, I answered that by saying, I'm not, we don't say that. We don't say that. Our opinion's irrelevant. This says it. This says it. Who cares what I say? This is what it says. So the question becomes, what does God say? Uh, and that's, that's what God says. That's very clear. And then somebody said, well, well, what kind of a God is it that makes us so that we, we needed a Savior? Why didn't he just make us so that we were okay just the way it was? He could have done that if he was God. And then I said to this person, well, imagine. I said, that's an interesting question. I said, you know, so I said, that shows the difference between your mindset as God and what God is. See, I said, you would want to create robots. Robots. But God has determined that in order to have a relationship with his very creation, he wanted to let his creation shake his fist at him and spit in his eye. Because then the ones who would embrace him in love, that relationship would be so much deeper and so much more profound, knowing that they could have done that and that instead they chose to embrace him and love him. Well, they understood that. And I gave the metaphor. I said, it'd be like you. I said, imagine you. You have a pet dog. We love our dogs. Imagine you had a dog, and the kind of dog you have, when you come home at night, your dog growls at you and bites you. <laughs> oh, Fluffy, I love you. <laughs> you mean. I said, after a couple of days, where's that dog? He's out in the street. He's out in the street. But you see, that's the difference between God and you. Because God, even as you are like that, God still embraces you, even in that horrible condition, and extends love. You know, the whole idea is to let people understand in simple ways what you're talking about. I mean, sometimes some of these are, you know, it seems ridiculous, but it resonates. Then I got a question, the likes of which I never would have been expecting or prepared for. This one girl says to me, 
Well, look, what is it about Christians? Why are they against mind-expanding uh, drugs? You know, you know, these are things, these are experiences that exactly bring us closer. We can understand the cosmos better. And what is it about Christians that they're so, you know, stilted and don't understand this? Yeah, as she said, that's right. He just reminded me. God gave us the drugs. He allowed it. So he gave it. So what's wrong with this? I said, well, you know, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I said, the best answer I can give you is found in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the first couple of chapters, and it's entitled The Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, what you said is exactly what happened. Because God had, had determined that they could have every fruit in the garden except this one. This one. God said, you can't taste that. And Satan said to them, to them early on, to the first man and woman. Oh, you see, he doesn't want you to have that because your mind would be expanded. You will then be like God yourself. You will know everything, and he doesn't want you to know that. And I said, and what happened? Mankind fell and never got up. There's your mind-altering drug. And that's what, that's what the Bible says about it. So this was... A pretty interesting thing. Uh, at the end, when I finished, about 20 to 25 kids came down to speak to me. Yeah, came down to such an extent that it actually interfered with the start of the next class. And the professor had asked me if I would leave and take the kids out in the hall. But you know, here's the thing. So many of the kids said to me they were so glad that I came that they never thought, they never thought they would hear what I did. They never thought that the, what I that they would hear what I said in a public university. And a number of these kids said that they were many hours away from their churches, hadn't gone to church in months because they didn't have a church. And what I had said resonated in their hearts. One, one young man came up to me because I told him my testimony and when I, you know, that when God really spoke to me a second time in my life to call me into this ministry, that I heard, you know, in my mind, I heard the words, you see... When that girl said, that, that mentally uh, handicapped girl said, oh, I love Jesus, he's my personal savior. And I heard God say to me, you see, I never heard you say that publicly about me. You can speak in courtrooms all over America, but I never heard you say it like that. And I knew that from that time forward that I would have to be in a different level with, with God. And this young man came forward and said, you know, I really would like to have a personal relationship with God. But, but, but I never heard that voice. I said, son... Very few people hear voices like that. God doesn't necessarily speak to you in a voice, but he speaks, speaks to you in a feeling, in a perception, in your heart. And if you ask God, you speak to God, God will make it very clear to your heart that he's there with you and is touching you. You'll know it. You'll know it. You don't have to worry about, about the heart. So, I mean, it was an extremely rewarding experience, so much so. So much so that the professor said to me at the end, would I come back next year to do it again to next year's class? <laughs> yes. Uh, and I said, yes, I would. Yes, I would. So listen to it. You can send it to other people. I think it'll, it'll bless you. Uh, I tried as much as I could to synthesize within about 50 minutes the very essence of what we are as Christians, what separates us 
from all the other major religions, why we stand alone, why what we have is believable, why it's not a leap in the dark, why it is compelling, and why it changes your heart. One of the things that I said to them, they said to me, well, you know, you know, what bothers me about Christians is they're just doing what they do in order to get themselves into heaven. They're just trying to get themselves into heaven. And I said, son, nothing could be further from the truth. Let me tell you something. Uh, you see there's five guys in the back? They're here today because they love me uh, as another Christian. They love me, and they're here supporting me and praying for me even as I speak. They're not getting paid. They're not getting any special recognition for this. But they wanted me to know that they're here for me. I said, that's what you have uh, when you have a Christian friend. We don't do what we do to work our way into heaven. We do what we do because we can't thank Jesus enough. I can't thank him enough for saving a wretch like me. And whatever I do as I reach out to this world and love the people that God tells me to love is because I love Jesus. And this is how I show Jesus I love him. I'm not working my way. This isn't a bartering system. I'm not, not creating a bank account. Uh, a divine bank account. I'm doing this because I love Jesus, and that's the way it is for Christians. That's the way it is for Christians. Well, I think it resonated. Uh, obviously, we'll be back next year. Listen to it. I hope it blesses you and touches your heart. Uh, but uh, it was quite an experience. Thank you so much for praying for me. I felt your prayers. I felt your prayers. All right, we're, we're back in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 44. And, and this will be the last, the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus now, uh, well, this is the last confrontation prior to the crucifixion of the religious elites. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And you look in verse 45, we'll start with that. Therefore, many of the Jews would come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, meaning raised Lazarus from the dead, put their faith in him. You got that? Many put their faith in Jesus. But, circle, but, there's always a but. There's always a but. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The squealers. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called, called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So understand what's going on here. Uh, those people who were sitting there, who were not happy with Jesus, did go to the, to the religious elite, uh, go to the chief priests, and the Pharisees, and tell them about Jesus. And so they call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council for the Jews. Even though Rome was in charge of, of all of the civil laws of, of that area, the religious laws, the, the religious population was, was being controlled by the Sanhedrin. So think about this. Instead of elevating, knowing that here is something incredible, this is a man who's raising people from the dead, the, the blind are seeing, the paralyzed are walking. Instead of seeing that, you see how Satan works in people's hearts. They were so concerned about their own personal position, their own well-being, that they would not accept Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is a problem with the world, because the world is concerned about their status. Oh, you know, if I give myself up to Jesus, you know, people are going to look at me like a flake. I'm going to be started. People are going to start calling me a holy roller. I'm going to lose all my friends. You know, <clears throat> all the ridiculous things that you hear. And, and in effect, you see this. You see this right here. 
uh, and so the Sanhedrin is called intercession about this Jesus. Right there at verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing, performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Can you believe this ridiculous discussion? Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, how ridiculous is that statement? Because here's the state, statement. Jesus was a pacifist. Jesus never told them to overthrow Rome. Jesus said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar. All right? The Romans couldn't have been happier if Jesus really, the, the ministry of Christianity, took rise. Because Christianity, those Christians never rose as revolutionaries. It was the Jews that rose up as revolutionaries. The Christians wouldn't do that. And yet you see here how Satan so darkened their minds and colored their thinking that they really didn't understand the full ministry of the gospel. Even though Jesus walked around for three years, here they are. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, they weren't too concerned about the nation. They were concerned about their place. All right? And that's one thing, yes, Jesus would have done because as Jesus was elevated and as Jesus' ministry grew, yes, the place of the religious elites would be eroded because they were hypocrites. Hypocrites. They had no right to be religious leaders. While they considered themselves legalists, they weren't following the law in any way, shape, or form. Um, but it's interesting is uh, that they recognized that, that Jesus was on the, the cusp of whether the nation would live or the nation would die. Isn't that funny? Whether the nation would live or whether the nation would die. Nothing could be more true. Verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Stop about that. Imagine that. Here's Caiaphas, the selfless, ruthless, religious elite, the high priest, indicating that Jesus, effectively, uh, would die, ought to die, and it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. And if you look at that, look first at verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, I had a judge that I... That uh, I, I couldn't stand. I referred to him as Caiaphas. <laughs> That's the truth. The other lawyers in the office knew it well. We all spoke like that. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Take a deep breath. And reflect on that statement. And reflect on that statement that a, a godless, ruthless, selfless, selfish man has just made a statement that tells you everything about Jesus Christ. That one man would, have, in effect, die in order to save that whole nation. And ultimately that whole world who would recognize they were sinners. And yet he, not even recognizing what he would say said that same thing. Incredible that out of the mouth of, of someone who is, a, as far as I'm concerned, 
a religious pagan. He could call himself a, a, a high priest, but this was no high priest. Uh, and so it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation per perish. And you know what? That's right, brother. You're right. It is better for you that one man would go to the cross and die rather than all of us, all of us, dying uh, spiritually. And that's what Jesus did for us. In verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Okay? They plotted to take his life. Uh, and this is what this whole end part of this chapter is about. That, that this would be uh, shortly before Jesus would go back into Jerusalem. And ultimately be crucified. And so you see it. That, the, that they had hardened their hearts. That they had determined in their hearts. Uh, that they could not. That they could not accept Jesus Christ. That they would do whatever they could to destroy him. Uh, and, and in order to do that. That their positions would be preserved. That the Romans wouldn't come in and take them out. And by the way I want you to understand something. And think about this. John is writing this. About 10 years or so after Jerusalem would be destroyed. All right? I want you to realize that. This is written about the year 80 AD. Jesus is going to die somewhere around 33 AD. John's writing this somewhere around 80 AD. Uh, Jerusalem wiped out by the Romans in the year 70 AD. And you know, anybody who would be reading this would know exactly. Oh my Lord. Caiaphas said that. And look. Look what's happened. The whole nation. The whole Jewish nation is wiped out. And let me tell you what happened at that last, last uh, series of years. When Rome put Jerusalem under siege. I was recently studying this in some detail. It's horrible. It's horrible. Those last from about the year 66 to about the year 70. Uh, there was an armed res uh, revolution. In Jerusalem, where the Jews armed themselves against the Romans, uh, and it, it was it was an unbelievable civil war. Uh, and finally, Rome uh, sent Titus down to, down there with an army, and they effectively they they surrounded the city of Jerusalem, uh, and they put it under siege. and And ultimately, uh, in order to get into the city, because the zealots had basically blocked themselves into Jerusalem inside the wall. So you couldn't get in there. So what did the Romans do? The Romans built up barricades and set fire to the, to the walls because the walls were filled with gold. Uh, and, and so they, in order to get through, they set, they set fire so that the, the bricks themselves would break and crumble. And you know, Jesus said that not one brick would be left on another. Well, as a result of this, as a result of this siege that went on for a couple of years, the entire walls crumbled and collapsed and almost and melted, literally melted. So that, in fact, uh, according to the reports that you read historically, not even a brick would be left on another brick because they were pulling the gold out. And then it gets worse because the slaughter was so bad that they estimate that over one million Jews died. One million Jews. Now think about that. One million million Jews dying. 
Uh, and I would submit to you, honestly, I would submit to you, that if, that, if they had taken uh, and adopted Jesus Christ and had taken Christianity, they would have found a way, honestly, to, to live in peace there. Because as a, as a Christian faith, you know, we understand the role of government. We understand Jesus never said to become revolutionaries. Uh, and yet they couldn't do that because they rejected Jesus Christ. And, and they were taken into captivity and, and dispersed throughout the world. And that is why the Jewish people pretty much from that time forward never had a country, never had a place, never had a homeland, were constantly wandering throughout the world. Uh, and you know the story as it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and so one of the things I, I thought about when I, when I prepared this lesson and I see the Sanhedrin, and I want to show you the danger that we... Uh, we as Christians can fall into. Do you think they started that meeting of the Sanhedrin with a prayer? Do you think? I do. I think they did. I think they did. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because it was a religious group. And so what happens? You see what happens when you can become so myopic, so into your own particular religious denomination. And what you see here is the danger of legalism. These people had become legalists, all right? And what did that mean? That, mean, that meant that they were so concerned about the uh, intricacies of their faith. Oh, no, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. Oh, oh, you're, you're healing blind people on the Sabbath. That's a crime. Oh, you're making people who are paralyzed walk on the Sabbath. Oh, no, that's a sin. And what happens is the very hand of God is missed because in our myopia, we're focusing on the legalism as, as opposed to seeing the big picture of who God is. God doesn't care about legalism, really. And so many of us are focused on that, on that myopic uh, issues uh, and, and missing the fact of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. It's about love and mercy. Uh, and, and seeing the hand of God. So what happens? God is there working. God is revealed. And they decide we got to kill him. But you're supposed to be religious. Well, he's not with us. He's different than us. He's putting us in jeopardy, really, really. And so you see this. And so understanding this, the Pharisees were not a political party. All right? The Sadducees were a political party, and typically uh, the high priests came from the Sadducees. All right, they had the political power, the political might. They were the ones that were connected with Rome and, and had the and had given them the right to be able to rule over the Jews. The Pharisees were religious sticklers, sticklers for detail, for legalism. Uh, that they wanted to make certain that the most minute element of the law was being established. That's right. The most minute element of the law is being established. Meanwhile, God himself is walking in your midst, and you miss it. You miss it. Uh, and so these two groups were rivals. You know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't like each other. But you see what happens? How people can unite in their hate for a common enemy. You understand? You see that? How Satan works? You know? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Basically, that's that, that rule. And so you see this. And so you see how this insight gives you a view into the hearts of sinful men and women. People would rather unite with their enemies than follow Jesus Christ. 
And if you understand why, why people today don't accept Jesus Christ, a lot of these things that you see here are the same. They were concerned about themselves. I don't want to give up my position. I don't want to give up my friends. I don't want to give up my power. I don't want to give up my connections. Uh, and so as you see this, even though they admitted that there were miracles. Yes, we know. He walked on the water. Big deal. Yeah, he raised a guy from the dead. Can you imagine being in, the, in these groups? It was like, you've got to wonder, what, what are you people talking about? What are you talking about? Look at this guy. He's doing things. Nobody's ever done anything like this. And this is what you do. Uh, and, and then you see Caiaphas speak up. And Caiaphas speaks up the way every politician in the history of the world has ever spoken up, right? Oh, yes. I love the people. I love the people. Where the people are going to be hurt. The people are going to be in danger. If we don't stop this, the people will be hurt. Yeah, the people will be hurt. Folks, that is the definition of demagoguery. Okay? Demagoguery. And that's what all politicians specialize in. Sorry to tell you, I'm not a fan. Okay? I'm not a fan. All right? I'm really not. Uh, and, and, and so you see Caiaphas, who was nothing more than a politician, be both devious and clever. In his mind, he had determined it's better than this one guy dies than the rest of us lose our positions and, and, and everything that we've worked for is put into jeopardy. And guess what? He won the argument. He won the argument. Uh, and we read that from that day forward, they plotted to kill Jesus. Uh, and, and this plot was so intensive and so devious that it worked its way up and ensnared Pilate. It ensnared Pilate because Pilate was concerned when he heard this plot. Oh, oh wait, if it, if it gets up to Caesar, that here's a guy who claimed he was going to be king of the Jews, uh, that I'm in jeopardy. I could be, uh, they, could, they could rat me out uh, to the Romans, and this is a problem. And this was all because Caiaphas had engendered this ridiculous position. And so they eliminated Jesus for a short time. But let me tell you something. Think about what they did. It's, it's like having a gasoline fire. All right? And, and instead of treating a gasoline fire the way it should be, you, you treat it the wrong way, and you throw water on it instead of trying to smother it out the oxygen. And what happens? Boom! It spreads. And that's exactly what happened. So instead of wiping out Christianity with the death of Jesus Christ, uh, what it did was... It blew it up, and it maximized, as God determined and showed. You see, this is Jesus, is the Son of God, will rise from the dead. And you see now, faith intensifying. All of this because they, in their minds, plotted to stop it. Because they were concerned about themselves, concerned about the effects of their power, and the loss about their power. And so ultimately, ultimately, uh, Jerusalem would be wiped off the face of the map. Jerusalem would be wiped out. There'd be nothing left. Nothing left. The reports that I read, uh, the studies that I read, say that the, the blood was pouring in the streets. Just pouring in the streets. Can you imagine over a million people killed? Over a million people killed? And one of the things that I learned as I studied this, uh, I studied the... Uh, the, uh, especially the last week of Jesus' life, I, I read something from Josephus, 
that talked about how many sheep were sacrificed that last Passover that Jesus died that. And according to the records, in that last Passover, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, uh, let me see the number so that I get it exactly correct, uh, 250,000 sheep would be slaughtered. Now let me explain to you why that's important. 250,000 sheep. According to temple records, every family had to have a sheep. That meant that on average, a family of 10 would have one sheep. That meant that most likely in Jerusalem, during the last week of Jesus' life, when he was crucified, there would be about 2.5 million Jews in Jerusalem. Does this stagger your mind? I mean, you know, we think about it growing up. I'm sure, I mean, I did. I always thought, oh, what is it like? Maybe 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. You don't realize the fact that there were two and a half million Jews in Jerusalem because every, every Jew in every place of the world would come to the temple during that period of time. And so there you have it. Two and a half million would come into Jerusalem. Two and a half million would wind up hearing about Jesus Christ being crucified. And two and a half million would then leave Jerusalem, and the world would never be the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the lessons that you've given us, Lord, as we, we see what happens when you close your heart to, to God, when you close your heart to Jesus. Lord, never let that happen to us, and never let it happen to our family or our friends. Help us, Lord, to be able to give this message to others, to let them see who you are, and understand why they have to come to you, Lord, in every possible way. Be with our people, Lord, this week. Let this lesson resonate with them. Bless them wherever they are, and bring them back safely to continue the study next week as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.